You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we're talking about the euro and its impact on the European economy. To help us cover this incredibly complex and robust topic, we have Dr. Thomas Meyer, who's the founder and managing director of the Flossbach von Stork Research Institute. Dr. Meyer's experience in finance is quite impressive. He was formerly the chief economist at Deutsche Bank. He's worked at Goldman Sachs and the IMF and the Institute for the World Economy. So without further delay, here's our conversation with Dr. Thomas Meyer. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to today's show. I'm your host, Stig Broderson, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Preston Pesch. As we said there in the introduction, we are very excited to be here with Thomas Meyer. Thomas, thank you so much for being with us here today. Good question. So today's topic is the euro, and I don't think we can find any better guest than you, Thomas, to help educating our audience and us. Now, Thomas, I think it's hard to fully understand the euro without first talking about the history of Europe and the two world wars. So Let's go back in history, and could you please talk to us about what led up to the creation of the European Economic Community that we today, in a slightly different form, know as the European Union? Yes, as you say, I think we have to go back to, to World War I, because I think this was a trauma that affected Europe. The war itself, of course. That ended the um, old times and it brought the new world. But it was not only the war who turned out to be a drama for Europe. It was also the end of the war. Uh, the Treaty of Versailles uh, was an old-fashioned peace treaty that put uh, the winners into a superior position and made the losers pay as far as they could the war damage. There was clearly the losers were the guilty ones and the winners were the ones who were dictating the term. It was understandable from the time, but uh, its effects were not uh, very good uh, because it paved the way for a lot of resentment on the part of the losers, Germany in particular, which opened the door to a new nationalist feeling. And then when you go Further on in time, when you look at the Depression, the early 1930s, where the economy turned down, where there was a lot of unemployment, this facilitated or paved the way of the Nazi regime to its ascendancy. So Nazis began World War II and uh, were defeated, unfortunately. But this time around, the Allies, and in particular the French, the Americans, and also the British thought that it was not a good idea to repeat the policy after World War I. So the Treaty of Versailles should not be repeated because everyone understood that this bred a new war. So it was primarily French exile politicians, some of them living in Washington, D.C., Robert Marchalon, um, that thought a year, one to two years before the end of the war on how to deal with the defeated Germany. And they came up with the idea that it would be much, much better for the future 
to bind Germany into a security structure. This idea and the help uh, of the Americans and the British then allowed the post-war, post-World War II politicians uh, to build this platform for Europe, which was supposed to end war ever after. The idea was to reconcile Germany, especially with France, but also with the other allies, and to bring it in to a European community. It is no coincidence that the European community started with coal and steel. It began as a coal and steel community. These two economic sectors were put under common rule of the members of this community, notably France and other European. Why coal and steel? Because back then, coal and steel were important resources for waging war. Also no coincidence that it then progressed to a European common agricultural policy. Also interesting, agriculture. Agriculture, you need food uh, to wage war. In your home country, you can't rely on imports, of course, because uh, your adversary may cut you off. And from then on, we progressed. We progressed to a European economic community that brought the countries closer together, but also provided the members a significant economic boost. It was for everyone a big plus uh, to be in there. Initially, the British did not join, some others neither. But because it was a very big success, uh, also the British came in. Um, in the 1970s. And uh, out of the European economic community evolved the European Union, which was, again, a bit broader. It was no longer just an economic community, but there were also further uh, areas of common structures added to it. In this process of adding common structures to it, we created first a European exchange rate mechanism, where the exchange rates were tied to each other, and out of that evolved European Monetary Union with the euro. Another project that came out of this, getting closer together and going over the original structure of the European economic community, was the single European market, truly singular market for goods and services, which was quite a revolution when you think of it, to be able to have services delivered in another country, which basically meant that the country where the services are delivered has to accept the regulatory framework of the country where the services originate. So mutual recognition of regulatory frameworks was involved in that. And then, of course, we have the so-called Schengen area. Schengen is a small village at the Dutch border. That village was decided to have passport-free travel among the countries that belong to this to this agreement. So we progressed from the two wars that tore Europe apart, World War One, World War Two, where the events that basically removed Europe from its earlier position as the global leading power. So the lessons from these two wars was to never ever have war in Europe again and to come closer together economically and also politically. So, Thomas, let's talk about the monetary union. 
The euro was established by the provisions in the 1992 Maastricht Treaty and adopted by the first 11 member countries in 1999. What was the original goal of adopting the euro? Good question. As early as, I think it was 1949, uh, there was a famous French politician, Jacques Ruff, who was advising Charles de Gaulle. And he said, Europe will be made for its money or it will not be made. So the idea to have a common money as an instrument for bringing Europe closer together actually played along all the time as the politicians thought that this would be a very big leap in, in bringing the European people together. There were efforts already much earlier in the early 1970s. There was a plan to build a common currency. It was called Werner Plan. This was a Luxembourg prime minister who initiated this or who oversaw the construction of this plan. It was very concrete already, but then the collapse of the Bretton Woods system, people will remember the solution of the link of the dollar to gold in 1971 by the Nixon administration. Later on, collapse of the Bretton Woods system and the introduction of a floating exchange rate system in 1973, around 73-4. That finished the plan, which had been built basically into the Bretton Woods system of fixed but adjustable exchange rates. So out of that came then this exchange rate mechanism I already mentioned, also took a while to develop that. And then it progressed from there further on to the European Monetary Unit. It was primarily a political project to bring together European unification. Added on to that were also economic thoughts. There was the argument that when we bring the economies closer together in a single market for goods and services, it would be much better to have a common money. There would be more advantage for having this common market if you also have have a common money. There were arguments about uh, it would reduce exchange costs and so forth. After all, we have to keep in mind that there are many small states in Europe which uh, in the past all had their own money and then you cross border, you had to exchange and so forth. But I would think that these economic ideas were kind of add-on. The real thing was political. So continuing on that, Thomas, you know, on our show, we primarily have talked about the U.S. dollar, which is you know, the, the main currency for international transactions. Now, how would you best explain the euro in comparison to the U.S. dollar, how they're similar and how they're very different? The dollar is, of course, the currency of a sovereign nation. We say this without thinking much about but it's important to recollect or to think about that currency of a sovereign nation is very different from a common currency or single currency for several sovereign nations. So why is that? Let's go back a step and explain for a moment how our money uh, is created, how it comes into existence. I mean, we all carry around uh, dollar bills or euro bills in our pockets. And uh, we think that they would that they would put these bills on deposit at a bank, and they would be there, and the bank would perhaps lend them out and collect them back. But our bank money, what we have in the bank, would basically be a full reflection 
of the banknotes issued by the central bank, which is, of course, an institution of the state. So that's wrong. It's not how it works. In our present monetary system, the bank money, the money that they have on an account at the bank is created through credit extension. So when you or I go to the bank, ask for a credit, uh, the bank will you know, look at whether we are credit worthy. They say yes. We sign the credit contract. The bank puts in its balance sheet a claim on you and me. So credit was extended. What do they do next? They do not go out and now collect dollar bills or euro bills in order to fund this credit. No, they create the money as a book entry. They write then on their liability side of the balance sheet, here is the money for this person who took out the credit. So what our bank money is, the money we have on a bank account, is basically a private liability, a liability created by the bank to the deposit holder. Now, the bank, of course, has the right given to it by the state. This is why they need a license, a banking license, to promise that they will exchange this bank money they created, this private liability, always, anytime, one-to-one, into the official currency, so into dollars or euro. That's a promise they make, but it's also a promise they cannot always hold. When the credit turns sour, the bank gets a problem because the money they created with the credit may also turn sour unless the government guarantees this money and the central bank helps in guaranteeing this money. So this is why in the U.S. we started out basically with banks back at that time taking gold and issuing notes. And uh, uh, later on, as the banks Banks were easily common notes, but not with any government or central bank guidance, issued too many. Uh, this created a banking crisis in 1908, which laid the foundation of the creation of the Federal Reserve. And uh, later on, Big Depression, 1930 to 33, they found out, uh, the politicians found out that you also have to have a deposit insurance so that if the bank disappears, the money doesn't disappear. This is why the Russell administration then created uh, the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. What I'm saying here is, in this money system in which we live, where larger part of our money, namely the side deposits that we have in the banks, are created by the banks and are a private liability, but it is guaranteed that this private liability can be exchanged into the official currency in the system. You need a central bank to manage the system and you need a government uh, to provide insurance. Now look at the euro. We have a central bank, the European Central Bank. So this ECB can manage the money. But we have many governments and no common deposit insurance. Each government guarantees in its own jurisdiction uh, to ensure the deposits um, up to at least 100,000 euros. But this insurance is as valuable as the financial capacity of this government. Now, you can say a government can never go bankrupt because 
usually, or in the U.S., this government has a central bank, and when push comes to shove, the central bank prints money for this government. Not so in the euro area. Look at Greece. The Greeks found out that the money they had on the bank couldn't get it out of the country because the banks were bankrupt in uh, 2010 and the government as well. So you could see that in the Greek case that uh, having one money for several states creates big problems. Right now, we can say that we have a cash union. So the euro banknotes that the ECB issues signed as like a IOU signed by the um, ECB uh, president, so far Mr. Draghi and now Madame Lagarde to sign the note. These notes are of common credit quality all around. One institution, same institution issue these notes. But when it comes to the bank money, because we do not have a common insurance, the bank money, the money on deposit, is as good as the bank and the government backing the bank. And this is of very different credit quality. If you have your money in account in Germany, you don't have strong banks, but you have a government which is financially pretty strong. So people feel that this is safe. However, when you have your money on a Greek bank, the Greek banks are also not strong, but on top of it, they have a government which financially is also weak. So these are two different assets, completely different of different quality. Normally, when things are fine, that's not so much of a problem. We have now interest rates in Greece uh, that are not that much above those in Germany. But when we have economic tension, so let's say we go into a recession, our companies get into difficulty, um, some of them cannot repay their credits. It is well possible that we see again that the bank money created by the banks for credit extension becomes very different. And um, we cannot exchange this anymore, as happened during the Greek crisis, for instance. To sum up, the euro is really half-baked when you compare it to the dollar. The dollar, you have banknotes that are equal credit quality, and you have bank accounts that are being made of equal quality through the FDIC, a federal organization. In the euro, we are half-baked. We only have the banknotes of the same credit quality, but the bank accounts are of very different quality. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. 
That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. So Thomas, with that, would you argue whether the euro has made the European banking stronger or weaker through the years? It has not made it stronger. When we think again of how the banking system interacts with the government and the central bank, I call this a private-public partnership of money production. The central bank is the manager of the money production. Uh, The government is the guarantor. If something goes wrong, the government will step in. It sets also the rules for everybody. And the banks are the producers. So we have these three elements working together. But as we discussed already in the euro area, the allocation of responsibilities is diffuse. That is why the banks are operating in different areas of quality. If you're operating in a jurisdiction with a strong government, you are better off than when you're operating in a jurisdiction with a weak government, financially weak, I mean, or financially strong. So in that sense, we have a fragmented banking system. And we also have uh, banks that have very different degrees of safety. So I would say we have not been able to move forward, integrate the banking market. And an unintegrated banking market, a banking market where the banks participated in the market are handicapped by the setup of the system, is in my view a weaker banking market than a national banking market where everyone knows the rules. Thomas, many people outside of Europe think of Europe as being divided, if they think of Europe as being divided, 
more into East and West, and perhaps that's primarily due、uh-huh. to historical reasons. But for you and other economists studying the euro, very often you think of the eurozone as North and South, and in、yes. between there is very little trust. So、uh-huh. the North thinks of the South as irresponsible and untrustworthy. And I would just like to apologize to all our listeners in Southern Europe. This comes from perhaps Thomas sitting in in Germany. I'm sitting here in Denmark in Northern Europe. And the South looks at the North and feels it's being unfairly treated. And you can probably put some more colorful <laughs> verbs on that too. Could you please elaborate on the lack of trust between the Euro members and how it continues to poison the relationship between the different areas? That is a key issue, a really, really important issue, that did not feature at all when we talked about the creating of European Monetary Union. It's a cultural divide, a battle of ideas. What does it mean? It means that there are different ideas of the role of money and the organization of the economy. Simply speaking, there is a preference. On the German side, and in that sense, the German side stands a bit for the Nordic side. There's a preference for hard money and rules. What does that mean? Rules, market economy, property rights, rule of law, and the role of the government is not to manage the economy, but to make sure that the rules are being obeyed. Money, hard money, produced by an institution. Whose only focus is price stability, not employment, not growth. Price stability, kind of an intelligent gold mine. That's the Nordic, or you could also say the German view. There's the other one, the French or the Southern view. The Southern view, the government is has a much stronger role、um, in managing the economy. Moreover, money is an instrument. Of economic policy, of government policy, so you use money or you use monetary policy to achieve certain economic objectives. This can range from stabilizing、uh, the business cycle、uh, to funding important、uh, projects of the government, so that the central bank funds government activities. So these these two ideas, these two philosophies. Are clashing. Interestingly, there was—I cannot remember that there was any talk of that when the euro was created. That is a key issue that we haven't resolved. When you look at the, the Maastricht Treaty, this is the predecessor of the European treaties regulating monetary union. When you look at this Maastricht Treaty, which is now the European treaty, you will find many factions. They couldn't agree. To on on certain position, so they touched it. For instance, there is a rule that governments must not be bailed out by other governments or the central bank when they're when they're in difficulties. That's a rule, right? On the other hand, there are also openings somewhere else in the treaty where a government in trouble can get support from other governments. As we. So the euro crisis evolves 
from uh, 2009 when the Greeks first uh, confessed that they had a problem with their statistics. So from 2009 onward until its peak in 2012, when we look for this, there was a shift of the structure of the system of the of EMU from originally more on the German side towards the French side, or you could call it from the Nordic side towards the southern side. The euro was sliding from east to west um, as they simply disregarded or broke, as Madame Lagarde said, or broke rules to save the euro. And it peaked in the sentence of uh, ECB President uh, Draghi in uh, June, I think it was June 2012, when he said, we shall do whatever it takes to save the euro. He added on within our mandate. But I mean, most people um, remembered and most people heard, they said, we shall do whatever it takes. And this disagreement of whether rules should reign or discretion should reign. This disagreement uh, remains with us. So keeping that in mind, which countries do you think benefit from the euro versus the countries that don't? Yeah, this is a question that you would answer differently from uh, each country's vantage point. If you are an Italian, you will see it's the Germans who benefit most from the euro. If you would uh, be a German, you would say it's Italians who benefit most from the euro. If you are French, you would say that uh, it's largely, again, the Germans who benefit from the euro. If you are Danish, perhaps you would say um, the Greeks benefited a lot from the euro or the Italians, uh, so the countries indebted. Why is that? The Nordic countries, they look primarily at the potential liabilities that they're accumulating. Um, by having given credit to the other countries, especially in the South, uh, notably Greece, uh, but also Spain, Portugal, then the smaller one, Cyprus. Uh, but the Nordic ones are thinking that uh, they are kind of keeping the structure up. They are footing the bill. Um, and as far as Greece is concerned, they don't really expect to get their money back. So they say it's the others who benefit. Then, um, uh, when you are in a southern country, you will see that the Nordic countries uh, haven't given their money for free. They have imposed conditions, what you had to do. Um, uh, you had uh, to follow the rules of a program that was uh, managed uh, by the IMF in cooperation with the European Commission and the European Central Bank. Your own sovereignty was infringed. Other people, bureaucrats, would come in and tell your elected government what it has to do. So you feel that uh, the euro is largely um, benefiting uh, the others. And uh, many of the others say the euro is basically an instrument to cement German hegemony uh, in Europe. It's a very contentious question of which I think you cannot really answer it, uh, answer it objectively. Economists have tried to um, come up with uh, estimates on whether a common currency is economically a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, most interestingly, the UK administration under Tony Blair uh, conducted every year tests whether 
the euro is good or bad because they have said that they might get in when they find out that it's good. And the tests were always inconclusive. So it's a very subjective issue. I guess it largely boils down to your judgment on whether you think that advancing uh, the euro is a good idea to keeping Europe together, or whether you fear that advancing the euro may actually push Europe more apart. Let's talk more about the euro. You made some very interesting research about how you see the future of the euro, and I'll definitely make sure to link to all of that in the show notes for the audience to look more into. Thomas, you made the argument that digitalization of the euro could, if not save, then make the monetary union stronger and make it resilient for the future. Now, could you please elaborate on what needs to happen before we can digitalize the euro and why it would work? Yeah, we we discussed the uh, basically two-tier money union that we have. We have a cash union, but we do not have a bank money union. And uh, we also touched upon uh, the very high debt that some of the countries have. Italy, more than 135% of GDP. Greece, a very large uh, number, if I remember correctly, we are now touching about 180% of GDP. Even, even France has something like uh, touching now 100% of GDP. So we have highly indebted countries and we have a two-tier monetary union where only the cash is really of the same quality within the entire monetary union. Now, what we should do is we have to deal with two things. We have to make these countries financially stronger. And secondly, we have to overcome the difference between cash and bank money. Let's uh, talk about the second first. Basically, you can overcome the bank and cash money if you require for every bank money that belongs to, to you and me, that every euro in the bank is being backed by one euro of bank reserves in the ECB's account. So if I have a euro um, on a bank account, the bank has one euro to back this in the ECB's account. We do this, we have a safe deposit. Safe deposit means even if the bank disappears, the euro that I have in this account will continue to exist because its counterpart in the ECB's account. So that would be the first step, create a safe deposit. How do you do that? Interestingly, the central banks have shown how this can be done uh, through quantitative easing. They have done quantitative easing for other purposes, but it shows how it can go. When a central bank buys a bond. Then it asks the commercial bank to look for the bond, or if it has it on its balance sheet, to sell this bond to the central bank. The central bank pays with with, uh, central bank money for this bond. And the bank gets the central bank money in its account, and it pays the bondholder to acquire this bond by creating for for this bondholder bank money. So bondholder gives the money to the bank, gets bank money in return, and the bank gives the bond to the central bank and gets reserve money in return. 
And in the end, the central bank has the bond as an asset, the reserve money as a liability, the bank has the reserve money as an asset, and the side deposit, the bank money as a liability. The side deposit, the euro on deposit that you have created this way is all the way covered basically with the central bank. Presently in QE, we don't link them together. So um, you cannot, uh, if you have a, a euro on the bank, you cannot say this euro on the bank is one-to-one back by a, a euro deposited on, on the central bank. That's not the case, but you can do this. Remember what I said. It's being created by the central bank buying bonds. So what could the central bank do to help the governments? It could buy government bonds. It already did buy government bonds. We can buy more government bonds. Take these government bonds out of the market, keep them as a stock, as a cover for the reserve money that it issued, which backs the bank money that the banks have created to acquire the bond. So then you have a side deposit and you have taken government debt out of the market. This is actually something economists have long talked about. A group of preeminent American economists, including such big names as Irving Fisher and Frank Knight and others, in 1933 have proposed this to the Roosevelt administration. Roosevelt decided not to do it for many reasons. Let's leave that out. could talk long about it. But that's a plan that has been developed and has been around, an idea that has been around for a long time. Now, as I said, it's an old idea. But you can actually now go one step further. You can now say, why have this bank money uh, still being managed by the banks? Because it's covered one-to-one by reserve money. Why not take the bank money and the reserve money that goes with it, so the liability on the banking's balance sheet and asset on the banking's balance sheet, or push it now on to the central bank? He would say, oh God, everyone having an account with the central bank, how big would that central bank have to be? I mean, they would have miles and miles of offices to, to deal with the account holders. Here comes in digitalization. You don't need this. If you make reserve money in electronic form tradable via blockchain, then you can have peer-to-peer payments or money transfers via blockchain without any administration built around it. So you could actually, by digitizing the euro, you could actually create the equivalent of the paper money euro in cyberspace. The two would be complementary. So you could take a cyberspace, a digital euro if you want, that you can trade uh, via blockchain from person to person without having to hand it over personally. You can uh, take this digital euro and let's say um, exchange it at the central bank against a paper euro if you want. With that, you would have uh, ended the role of the bank as the agents for cashless payments. This is, by the way, how they came into existence, making cashless payments possible. But you don't need them uh, when you deal with crypto money, when you can trade money on a blockchain. So you end this, and you you let them now deal in the future with uh, uh, taking in savings 
deposits and lending them on to a creditor. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. We've seen innovation in all fields and money is no different, especially right now. You know, you can go back to the Sumerian barley money 5,000 years ago, or you can look at what's happening right now. And progressive economists would argue that 
It's only a question of when the euro becomes digital, uh, while many economists argue that it will never happen. What do you think the timeline is for the digitization of the euro, and which steps are feasible in the current political climate? Yes. Of course, I come here from a, from a certain uh, position. And uh, so there, please forgive me if I say that uh, this uh, pronouncement that digital money will never come reminds me a bit of the pronouncement that the horse uh, will always be the primary means of transportation and cars are only a short-lived idea that will soon go away. No, uh, I think digital money will come. It is like paper money that was uh, invented in China and was brought in the 17th century to Europe, and uh, the paper money took over and simply pushed out uh, the metal-based money because it was easier to handle. And I think we have to look at digital money as a money revolution, like paper money. And so I forgive me, but I think the, the authorities or whoever will not be able to forbid it. You can't forbid it. It's there. You can't uninvent the blockchain. The bigger question that I see is how the money system will run in the digital area. Presently, I think every central bank, no, that's, that's too much, but most central banks, and they include, of course, the Federal Reserve, the People's Bank of China, the Swedish Riksbank, Bank, which always, by the way, is a money pioneer. They were the first to bring paper money to, to Europe. Um, the Bank of England, even the ECB, even the ECB, they all presently work on digital money. The BIS, Bank for International Settlement, this is the bank of the central banks, has created a working group led by Mr. Quarry, uh, presently still an ECB governing council member, but soon just the head of this group. So they are heading this group. So we, we shall see digital money, no doubt about it, and digital central bank money. But the bigger question is, is the digital central bank money just like the paper note and, and it does not replace the bank money? You could think of that. You could leave the bank money as it is in place. Bank money are created through credit extension by the banks with all the problems associated, but serving certain purposes. And have instead of the paper bank note, just a digital money, but not change the system. It would be one way to go about it. I can understand that when the existing system works well, this may be the way to go. It's probably the way the US will go or whoever. But in the euro, we have a special situation. I think the euro, as it is set up, is not working because. In this system of credit money, where we create the bank money through credit extension, this does not function when you have uh, many sovereign nations using the same money and not actually being able to agree on how to ensure this because the North feels that it's paying for the South and, um, and so on and so forth. For that particular money, I think a digitalization offers change of the system. It is almost like going from the combustion engine to the electric engine. So my bottom line on this is digital central bank money will come, but whether it will come together with the change of the credit money system into 100% money, this is how Erwin Fisher called this, 100% money. That's another question. But in my view, it would be a good opportunity to put the euro on a firm footing and avoid its eventual collapse. 
which could well happen in the next severe recession. I think you bring up a really good point, and the euro in the current structure is just not that fit for competing with the other major currencies. Right. I definitely think you have a good point there. Let's talk slightly more operational. Let's say that it will be implemented. We will have a digital currency in this scenario. How would that impact the business and banks in the euro area? Yes. Actually, I think if you're a consumer and you're not interested in all these things, I think you will not find much difference. Um, you will uh, probably still pay with probably not with the bank card, but with your mobile phone or smartphone. Or if you don't like this, you can still get your paper notes out of a cash machine. So the uninterested average person doesn't have to worry what is driving the payment app that she or he has on a smartphone. It's more for what is going on behind it. It's kind of, kind of like if you're driving a car, right? You drive and you will not necessarily, when you're sort of going along, when, I should say when you're riding in the car, you will not necessarily find some, that much of a difference whether it's electric or whether it is a combustion engine. If you, when you drive it, then you do not just have a ride. You may feel it. So for the, for the rider, it is not such a big deal. But when you drive it, when you are sort of dealing with it, it, it it's very different. Actors have a different role. I take the banks. As we said, the banks presently create money by extending credit. In such a system, as I have sketched it, the banks would not create money. It would be the central bank that would do it. Only the central bank that would do it. The banks not. The banks would collect existing money and lend the existing money on to borrowers who could use it to whatever, whatever purpose, fund an investment, whatever, you know, fund your house, construction or purchase or whatever. But they would not create it. The money would always be used for one thing. So if I give it up, as do not use it as for consumption, I save it, I give it up, I give it to someone else. Right, to put it in my bank, and the bank can give it to someone who invests with it, uses it to pay construction workers or whatever, and uh, the construction workers put it in the bank and so forth. That's different. That's different from the situation today, because we can create money for double use of real resources. If I go to the bank, take out a credit, get the money in my account, I spend it, I engage construction workers, but no one else may have saved at all. So we create claims in multiple numbers, claims on the same real resource. So the banks, as I said, they would collect the existing money and lend it on. It would be, they would be more like crowdfunders. Perhaps with one different, they have an equity cushion, equity position, and this cushion would work like a first loss insurance. So let's say a bank has 10% equity of its balance sheet. 10, the first 10% of the loss are insured. Once the equity is gone, the bank is bankrupt, you have the credit as the, um, the, the assets as, as the creditor of, of the bank. So that's the, the role of the bank. So all of the government, first of all, the government will actually get a big boost on their fiscal, on, on their debt position. As I mentioned before, when you take this government bonds as a cover for the outstanding money, you can reduce the outstanding government debt because this cover is permanently, permanently needed. Presently, we have about 7 billion euros in bank 
money, side deposits. If you take this out and buy government bonds for this, you can actually reduce euro area government debt ratio from 85% of GDP at present to less than 25% of GDP. And you can do this for every single country. Some would benefit more. Let's say the Italians would go down from 135 to 25. The Germans would uh, benefit less. They would go down from a little bit more than 60 to 25. But it could be generous in this regard because everyone will benefit. This would also allow the government now to engage in fiscal projects in a prudent way because they would have to take into account that they would not be bailed out anymore because they could not have the banks create new money for them. And they would not be able to force this European Central Bank in this new system to create digital money for them. So the governments would get relief, but also more room for freedom. And of course, the investors would be more like people presently in the capital market. They would either raise money on the capital market, existing money, and, or they could go to the banks where the banks would intermediate existing money to them. If there would be governments who cannot deal with this because they need money for fiscal purposes, they could, in my view, issue tokens, token money to fund their expenses. Uh, remember that the Greeks experimented with this as a parallel currency, a fiscal currency, and the Italians are toying with the idea with so-called mini-bots, which are basically short-dated government debt issued as a currency because it's without interest and with infinite maturity to fund government projects. So I wouldn't be here too rigid about it. Let's have the euro as a non-political money created solely for the benefit of the user, have the government do fiscal prudent policies and hopefully live within their means. But if they don't, then they can issue their own money in parallel uh, to the euro, see whether this would get them any advantage. I doubt, but I wouldn't forbid it. So, Thomas, here on the show, we talk a lot about how various stocks will perform during the next recession. But I think there is an underappreciation of understanding how the main currencies will perform. So if we zoom out and you know, sum up some of the things we learned here today together with you, how can the investor, whether that investor is you know, situated in Europe, the US, or wherever that might be, how can they look at how the euro will be positioned for the next recession, given everything we talked about in this interview? Yes. Uh, let me start with one caveat. Uh, what I'm saying is uh, purely the view of an economist. Uh, and it is definitely no investment recommendation. I think as an economist that uh, the next recession uh, will put considerable strain um, on the banks um, and on the financial system. We know that we have higher debt now than we had before the last debt crisis that led to the Great Recession of 2007-2008. High debt, that would put a lot of stress um, on the banking system. We put a lot of stress on our existing money system. And in times of this, of such stress, the weakest currencies are often the ones that suffer most. You could see this already in 2018 with some of the emerging market country currencies taking hit as the 
Fed was raising rates. And I think when we see a downturn, we can see a flight to safe places, to safe currencies. Now, within the existing money system, usually the dollar is such a currency. Sometimes, again, people will fly out of the money system and fly to gold. We have already seen quite a bit of appreciation of the gold price. And I'm afraid when we have a serious recession, the biggest centrifugal forces will fall on the euro as uh, the euro is half-baked. And it is uh, conceivable that like in the euro crisis of 2010, that some of the euro bank money will no longer be convertible, i.e. people cannot use it to make payments cross-border. This is what the Greeks learned when the ECB stopped the access of the Greek banks to its refinancing facility. The result was that if you had euros on deposit at a Greek bank, you couldn't transfer them abroad. So what did you do? We were trying to get hold of your banknotes. We were going to the cash machine, try to get out your deposit money in the form of banknotes. Well, they also stopped that. You had a strict limit imposed on how many bank notes, how much money in, in the form of bank notes you could take out. So concern is during the next year, the year recession, we may see the Greek predicament of 2010 perhaps multiply and being seen in other countries. People will then flee out of the euro as fast as they can, dollar, gold, maybe the haven where they will go. Very, very interesting how you look at this. Thomas, thank you so much for coming here on the show. As a trained economist myself, I'm humbled by the wealth of knowledge that, that you bring to the show and how you, how you explain the euro so well. Where can the audience learn more about you and Floschbach von Stork Research Institute? Yes, we have a website. You can find it very easily if you put it into a search machine, Flossbach von Storch Research Institute, or also you can type in www.flos-re.com. So this is fantastic stuff, Thomas. Thank you so much for making time for us. I know I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and learning from you. Uh, we'll be sure to have links in the show notes for anybody to click on those and check out uh, everything that you just talked about. Thank you so much. All right. So before we let you go, we would like to play a short clip from our new show, Millennial Investing, hosted by Robert Leonard. If you'd like to get more content from the Investors Podcast Network and you just started to invest, Millennial Investing takes you through all areas of investing from real estate, stock investing, how to invest in yourself, you name it. And in this short clip I'm going to play, the guest is Jason Moser, who you might know from The Monthly Fool. And the topic is stock picking. Enjoy. So in this part of the show, I want to do something that we haven't been able to do yet. And I want to take a deep dive into an individual stock pick that you have. I want to walk the listeners through a full analysis of better understanding of how to analyze a company. Let's dive into that a little bit more. Which company are we going to be looking at today? Etsy. Ticker is E-T-S-Y. So first thing, how did you find this company? You know, With thousands and thousands of companies available to invest in, how did this one make it onto your radar specifically? 
Yeah, you know, I remember the brand name Etsy from when it had started in the early, I guess, 2010 or 11 or something like that. And it just was something that I had seen. I remember when it went public, then I thought, oh, I just had noted that it gone public. But I have my younger daughter hit this stage at school where she was into making a lot of slime. It was like the stuff to do at school. Like they're making like this craft slime with different colors and textures and selling it. So she got into doing that. And uh, I mean, you know, they were selling it. And so she asked about opening up a little slime store online. And so we went actually through the process on Etsy and doing that. And all along the way, I was thinking, man, this is a really robust setup. And it got me just interested in at least what kind of business it was. And so then I went to work and I, I read through the 10K, you know, which is basically the annual report and just learn more about the actual business itself, its model, like how does it make money? I think that's the key focus with any company. If you're going to take a look at it is know how it makes its money. I mean, you'll see, I think, metrics on TV thrown out there all the time, PE ratio and whatnot. I mean, that's all fine, but those don't really tell you about the business itself. So learning about how Etsy worked as a business, then trying to figure out, okay, what kind of a market is there for this? How big of a market opportunity is this? And then the $50,000 question, as we've been asking with so many companies, is how do they survive Amazon? Because, I mean, Etsy is ultimately the business model. It's a very capital-light marketplace. You know, it's just a, it's a great network of people who sell their goods, but the Etsy business itself I mean, they don't carry any inventory. They don't own any really stuff, right? They're just connecting people. And so learning a little bit more about all of that, it got to the point where you could see it was a growing business with a big market opportunity. And, you know, when you have those capitalite businesses, they can make a lot of money along the way. It did seem like there were some concerns regarding leadership and I think Amazon as well. And I think that kept a lid on the stock for a while. I think the market wasn't very fond of it. But there's been a leadership change there uh, back in 2017. Josh uh, Silverman, I believe is his name, is the CEO there now. And he's just he's done a lot of things to grow this network, make it more valuable to the buyers and sellers that use it. And that's showing through all of the metrics that they report quarter in, quarter out. So you see a pretty good business that's growing with good leadership. Then you start thinking, all right, well, maybe that would make a good investment. And in this case, it's been a good one so far. We still got some time to go. Okay, guys. So if you would like to listen to the rest of the episode with Jason Moser, I make sure to link to the episode in the show notes. Or even better, make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by searching for The Investor's Podcast Network on Apple's podcast app, Spotify, or whatever podcast app you're using. All right. So that was all that Preston and I had for this week's episode of The Investor's Podcast. We see each other again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.